right guys, I hope you'll forgive my indulgence. Uh, normally when I look at any kind of two-part, and I've said this before, I decide after I've looked at it, after I've analyzed it and gone through my notes and whatnot, uh, if I'm going to do it in one episode or two. I've decided to do all of Dark Frontier in one episode. A couple reasons why. First of all, this is really one episode. The cliffhanger ending of the first one is only really there to you know, ensure that the audience is going to see the next part. And it was designed to be one major episode. Uh, from from the from uh, word go, they did split up the directing job between the two. Uh, that was at the actually at the request of Cliff Bowl, the gentleman who directed the first one. But otherwise, this was designed as one cohesive piece. Now, <clears throat> before I really get into, okay, I'm using my second notepad now. Uh, I have three pages on this notepad of of notes for this episode. I don't know how long that's going to make it. I just thought I'd mention it. So forgiveness. It is a two-parter, after all. Before I really get into the behind-the-scenes stuff and then actually start digging into the episode itself, I just want to say something. I realized this is Voyager probably at its best right here. This isn't the best episode of Voyager, but I think this episode best demonstrates why uh, I like Voyager and really is like Voyager as a, as a, in a microcosm, I think is the word it's. Microcosm or macrocosm? I forget which. I think microcosm is what I want here. In other words, you can this episode is like a condensed version of all of Voyager. <clears throat> it, at its best, I should say. Uh, not, you know, Threshold has no place in this. But my, my reason for that is twofold. Well, like 50-fold, but I'm going to discuss the other 48 when I go through this. This episode has a lot of continuity gaffes and logical loopholes and not adhering to its own rules and not adhering to its own logic and just things that you would refer to as nitpicks. And there's a lot of them. I was actually keeping track early on. Uh, about halfway through the first episode, I stopped. Uh, I may still have a few written down, so forgive me if I bring them up. But I made a deliberate choice to stop writing them down. Because of the second point, this episode is very character-driven, very heavy on character development and character growth, and very heavy on really pushing things forward and doing something uh, with, with, with the dynamic between these individuals. Again, Voyager at its best. I will say it is a damned shame that the other writers apparently didn't get the memo, but I'll talk about that later. <clears throat> So, before we get really get into this, I want to explain to some of you what sweeps mean. Now, the funny thing is... <clears throat> not now, throat. The funny thing is, uh, some... I actually was under the mistaken impression that sweeps didn't actually exist anymore, since television, as it used to be, doesn't really exist anymore, and the Nielsen ratings are about as... Are, are very out of date, in, in my professional opinion. At this point in time, we have much, much more accurate ways and much more direct ways of tracking what people are watching, when and why and how. Um, but apparently they still exist. There is actually a sweeps uh, set up for, for 2016. I was really surprised by that news. But let me go ahead and describe, for those of you who haven't actually... Uh, gone through television productions or anything like that, what sweeps actually means. Uh, you get I'm sure you know what the gist is. It's when you care about ratings. But what it actually means, <clears throat> the term actually comes from when the sweep, the, 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 uh, the mail of the notebooks would actually start in the eastern coast and then go west, sweeping west. I know that's a weird thing to name it. But the idea is certain households, a few million I believe, are given 
these notebooks and they're supposed to write this a 10 page notebook and they write down okay this is what i watched at this time on this day and this is what i watched at this time at this day and they have a whole thing for determining how they how uh, they give these notebooks out and which household they give these notebooks out to etc cetera, etc cetera. and then they give you a little thing that you can mail the notebook back in and they take that and tabulate it now the thing is there are a few specific points in the year that are sweeps i believe there's about five um, these now this notebook thing only happens during these sweeps things. Otherwise, there are other ways of tracking Nielsen ratings. But the sweeps are specifically okay. We're going to take this data and we're going to use this as the metric for how shows are doing. Now that's the important part. I know I talk about this kind of concept a lot in, in all the various aspects of my show, but the idea here is they have arbitrarily decided this is what will determine whether a show is popular or not, and therefore we'll use that as the baseline from now on. Just like blood in, uh, in, in, in familial and political matters, just like money in terms of currency, etc., etc. You get the idea. So, sweeps then. Um, <clears throat> the, the, the sweeps are actually pretty important. Uh, it's actually a seven-day diary, excuse me, not a 10-day diary. I don't know why I said 10-day. Uh, the, the sweeps are very important to the actual makers of the show because when the sweeps are live, they want to basically be putting their best on display and trying to really pull an audience so people will write in their notebook, I was watching Star Trek Voyager during that sweeps. That's important to the producers, the developers, the people who are actually making the show, because that information will be reported to their bosses. And their bosses will say, your show is doing well, so you know, you can keep going and existing. I, I know that sounds like a weird reward, but again, some people don't really understand just how constant, continuously under threat most shows were. I do need to use past tense because television really has changed in the last 10 years, but were under constant threat of being canceled. It was a nonstop struggle to continue to exist. Even a flagship show like Voyager had justified its existence constantly. Deep Space Nine is, it is a nothing short of a miracle that Deep Space Nine actually got to seven seasons. And I mean that sincerely. They were not doing well ratings-wise. Um, <clears throat> but so, that, uh, so that's why it's important to the people actually making the show. Believe it or not, it's important to the executives, too, because those ratings are what they can then go to the advertisers, the people who want to advertise on, on their network, and say, okay... So you want to put these ads up, well, you know, we could give you a 45-second slot in the show, but it's going to cost you X, Y, Z because we have these ratings for that particular show or for this time slot or for this period of the day or whatever. And they can actually use that as a measuring point to, say, to get more money, which can then keep the studio going. So this is why sweeps were important. Again, I would argue sweeps really shouldn't be a thing anymore, not, not in the modern era. I would also argue that CBS needs to fall into the bottom of the sea, but that's unrelated. <clears throat> um, so that's sweeps. Now, why am I bringing that up now? Well, as I mentioned, despite the fact that, in my opinion, Season 5 has been great, like lots of really good stuff in Season 5, they weren't really doing that great in the ratings. And they're like, okay, we need to really put our best foot forward. We're about to hit the sweeps. I forget which sweeps. This came out in probably the July sweeps. There's, there's a couple sweeps that are more important than other sweeps. We're about to hit the sweeps. We need to really give our best foot forward. We really need to get those ratings and improve to the network that we, we can keep going. Uh, Brennan Braga, who at this point was basically in charge of the show, um, as far as actual functionally being in charge of it, which of, with, of course, Rick Berman constantly looking over his shoulder and making everything worse, because that's his job. It's literally in, in Rick Berman. I shouldn't say that if I don't mean that. It's in Rick Berman's job description to to make everything worse. It's, that's Rick Berman, maker of things worse. Anyways, 
I am being figurative. That's why I don't want to say literally there. <clears throat> don't want to abuse that word. Anyways, <clears throat> they uh, they wanted to really grab have a ratings grab. And Braga said, why don't we pull away of the warrior? Now, for those of you not aware, there was a two-parter designed as a one-parter over on Deep Space Nine called Way of the Warrior. I'm not going to talk about that here except to say that it was a smash hit. And it's pretty much why Deep Space Nine was allowed to keep going at that point in time. Because it came out during a sweeps thing, and it was very successful, and that was got them the ratings, that got them the advertising money, that allowed the show to keep going. So they wanted to pull that kind of trick again. Bizarrely, this actually worked. Dark Frontier was a smash hit. Arguably one of the most watched episodes of Voyager at this, uh, in general, up to this point in time. Even though earlier episodes like Scorpion are often considered better by some people, and myself included, this really caught a lot of people's attention. And it's easy to see why, as I'll discuss as we go through it. Uh, so this episode is probably one of the bigger reasons why Voyager got the full seven seasons. For good and for bad. But again, I don't want to get ahead of myself. <clears throat> I want to also mention... Uh, it's interesting, because originally this was supposed to be Alice Krieg as the Borg Queen of this episode. Oh, by the way, spoiler alert, the Borg Queen is in this episode. She doesn't actually show up till ep to Pultel Part 2, believe it or not. Um, but yeah, so they actually wanted Alice Krieg back, and to this day, everything I've been able to find, including an interview uh, from Braga, could not figure out where she was at the time. She was just busy. And they couldn't actually figure out what she was doing. She was unavailable, and that was the end of it. This is interesting, because Alice Krieg would actually come back in the future. But I think, believe it or not, this actually worked out for the benefit of the series. I'll talk more about why later. I have a big thing, a big theory to drop on you uh, towards the end of this, about this episode, and to really help explain it. Because, And it's a theory that just came to me this time watching. I never actually thought about this before. There's always been something that's bugged me, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. So... <clears throat> Susanna Thompson is the woman they brought in. Now, Susanna Thompson was basically the number two uh, actress, the runner-up for the Borg Queen back in First Contact. Uh, and so she got the job this time. And she will actually be playing the Queen in several episodes hence as well. She, uh, <laughs> she does a... I don't think she does Alice Krieg's role, but I think she does what she's supposed to do very, very well. I'm just going to go ahead and put this out there now, even though I'll talk more about this later. I think this is in every way a different, uh, I think I'll use the word, model of the Queen than the Alice Krieg model. And I don't just mean physically. I mean the way she acts, the way she functions, the way she directs the hive, etc., etc. I think she is a different... I don't have a better word for it, a different model. So I like the fact that she is different from Alice Creek's performance, and I really like how she does it. She is really good in this episode. It's a bit of a shame that Unimatrix Zero happens, but whatever. Um, I also find it interesting that once they knew they couldn't get Alice Krieg, uh, I hope I'm saying her name right. I have a decent amount of uh, respect for the actress. Um... They rewrote a bit of the script. Now, you'll never actually see this in the episode. It's never stated outright. But in the actual script, it does deliberately say, this is a different queen. This is not the queen that was at first contact. It is a new queen. I mentioned that because for a very long time, people were uncertain, especially when this came out, if this was the queen from first contact or like a different body but the same mind or whatever. But the script made it fairly clear, different queen, and as I will discuss in a bit, I firmly believe different queen. Um, <clears throat> there's one last thing I want to do. Now, I'm going to turn my monitor on for this. Forgive me. I usually record these with my monitor off to help with lighting and so that you don't see the reflection of my glasses. But I didn't want to write this whole thing down. 
So I have to pull this up. I have to share this with you, okay? Uh, give me just one second to find. I have it here, and apparently here it is. So I've talked before about a gentleman named Joe Manoski. Hang on, I should make sure the. Yeah, we're good. Okay, Joe Manoski. Now he is a great character uh, writer and terrible at everything else. And I've talked about this before. You know, we all have strengths and weaknesses in writing. His weakness is making a coherent background. He doesn't do continuity. He doesn't do setting. He's the guy who said, screw it, let's just throw some technobabble and make it happen. Well, <clears throat> this episode in many, many ways contradicts Q-Who, which in my opinion is among the best TNG episodes ever. A great Q episode, the origination of the Borg, great character stuff, great music, great atmosphere. I, I could gush about Q-Who forever. It's a fantastic episode. Jo uh, this episode contradicts that. Now... I will say that I kind of agree with what Joe Minoski says, but I also firmly disagree with it. I'm going to go ahead and just read for it word for word. I'm not going to put any words into his mouth. Word for word what he said. And I quote, There was no way in the world we were going to get rid of the Hansen arc just because it didn't match what happened when Q first threw the Enterprise near that Borg cube. There should be some mention in a database somewhere, and Picard should have known. There was a little bit of knowledge in our minds. The Borg were a very slender rumor, and the Hansons followed up on the rumor and just disappeared. Whether that holds water or not, that's all the justification we needed to go forward, to go, excuse me, to go with the Hanson arc. Even if we couldn't have come up with that justification, we would have done it anyways. I think you're denying new audiences the chance to see this arc that wouldn't be told if you were going to be faithful to something that was established a decade ago. We are not willing to be that rigid with continuity. That right there is full frontal Joe Minoski. Yes, we established this story arc 10 years ago, but who gives a damn? Okay, I'm being disingenuous. But the point is, this man clearly just doesn't give a damn about continuity or staying to, clear to the mythos or the setting or anything of like that of Star Trek. And as I've said before, while TNG was pretty bad about string continuity and story continuity... They were pretty good about setting continuity. For Voyager to just throw that out the window is just kind of... Uh. Now, the other side of that is he does have a point. They have an interesting story to go with here. They don't want to abandon that just because it doesn't fit things that have already been established. Now, this is where I say I firmly disagree with him because you don't have to get rid of it. You just have to rewrite it a little bit. As we see in the flashbacks, the Hansons knew a disturbingly large amount about the Borg. They already had a cube model in their ship, for God's sakes. They knew about the cybernetics. They knew about the hive mind thing. They knew plenty of things about the Borg. When the Borg were, and I quote, rumors and hearsay. Why not rewrite that? Why not have the Hansons um, have, just, have not been going out specifically seeking the Borg, but just new life, radicals who are trying to find something that hadn't been found before. And they'd heard these rumors about these, uh, these ships that had been scouting in this area that were unlike anything anyone had ever seen and all. That, just, that would just spark that creative, explorative, adventurous spark. Yes, let's go, let's see that. And then they spend, you know, days and months without finding anything and they're getting discouraged just like they do in the episode. And then, bam, a Borg cube. And they're like, oh my god, look at it. It's massive. There's hundreds of thousands of people on it. You know. And then they go after it, and then they find out about it. I mention this because that's all it would have taken to smooth out continuity. 
That's all it would have taken. Just a few little edits and bam, it fits perfectly. It also fits because, as we know, they never got to transmit any of their information back because they were in the Delta Quadrant. So I mention this, though, because this is why uh, I am so against Minoski's ideals. It's not that he... He actively is like anti-continuity. I've talked about this before. He is the person who says, screw it, let's just tell the story. And he does do good stories. Credit where credit is due. He does some great character stuff. I love a lot of his character pieces. And his dialogue, Joe Banowski usually writes the good dialogue in this series. His dialogue is is smart and, and just really gets to the feeling of which character is which and really helps pull uh, chemistry out of the characters. And I love that. But he is literally the kind of guy who would be like, let's just make this episode that has nothing to do with anything and contradicts everything, but who cares because I want to tell this story. You know, he is, he is literally, he's one of the faction that was pushing against continuity. Um, and he was not alone in that. But I'll be talking about that a lot more when we start talking about TNG, when we start talking about the continuity and the anti-continuity factions. Because that's where that really uh, was coming to a head. Anyways, <laughs> so <clears throat> I just wanted to get that out there. Uh, I'm going to finally talk about the episode proper. So this is it, The Return of the Bog. Now, this was a very dangerous and risky thing to do. I've said it before and I've said it again. When you have an opponent that is so strong as the Borg, you either need an exit strategy or you need to be very, very careful and precise in how you apply them. Just put them here a little bit and then have nothing and then I put them here a little bit. One of the best ways I've seen to showcase a, a race that's that much more powerful, I'm not going to name names here, uh, is to have you basically just encounter like the scout forces. Like, imagine, that would be an interesting take with the Borg, wouldn't it? Those cubes, what if those cubes we keep fighting are actually just scouts, the equivalent of probes, and their real ships are over there just, it's like, oh my god. <laughs> but of course, this is Voyager, so they're not going to do anything like that. Um, and I just need to get this off my chest. I really wish the Borg had actually felt threatening in this episode. To Voyager, I mean. The fact that they could temporarily mask their life signs, I'm with that, and I'll talk about why. Uh, the fact that they could uh, disguise their ship for a little bit and then have some trouble with it, I'm with that, and I'll talk about why. The fact that they had a shuttle in the middle of the, of the complex, and at no point in time did I feel they were really being as threatened as they should be. That should feel like you were an ant walking through a furnace that is currently being destroyed by an atom bomb. Okay, I'm exaggerating for the sake of... But the point is, that's actually the broad atmosphere. I don't want to think that. Imagine you are an ant, and you are sneaking quietly around an entire army of, I don't know, something that eats ants that isn't a spider. Don't I don't want to think about an army of spiders. Um, <laughs> let's go with a human aspect. Let's say you are a person walking around an entire den of... Rancors. I know, Star Wars. Bear with me. And I mean just tons of them. Hundreds of them. All around. And they're all just... And occasionally they'll smell you and you just freeze. And you've got like some kind of device that's just barely keeping you hidden from them. And you're sneaking. And that incredible tension of if any of them actually detect you, you're dead. Like, like there's not even going to be a chance to recover. And so you're just very, very carefully trying to around and you don't want to act uh, funnily enough i've actually felt this way in some stealth games in the past that that tension knowing that if you're spotted it's over um i feel like they could have gone with that route instead of the route they did but they did do a lot of things right but anyways um uh 
So I, I, uh, this is an interesting concept. So uh, Voyager is so irrelevant that only a probe goes after it to assimilate it. And then Voyager uses a frankly brilliant tactic that we will, of course, never see again. Um, I want to mention this here. I'll be mentioning this elsewise, too. I, I wish... Uh, I, I might actually do this, there, but I've, I've already, it's already too late to really do this properly. There's a concept in Star Trek, which is dumb. <laughs> I, I love these shows, seriously, but it's dumb. They'll come up with some brilliant tactic, and then they will never use it again, ever. This is Star Trek, one of the most key, powerful tools, technologies, that the Federation has is their transporters. Break down the enemy's shields, or or make them, uh, you know, make them lose harmonics or whatever. Just just get through the enemy's shields, beam a bomb onto the enemy ship, and that is actually very brilliant, tactically speaking, um, because most ships aren't designed to withstand a torpedo impact from inside. The armor, the hull uh, plating, the actual shield uh, arrays and whatnot are usually on the outside of it. This is one of the reasons why, you know, when, when it comes to Star Wars versus Star Trek, the question all boils down to, me, for me, can they beam through the shields? Like, literally, that's the only question. Because Star Wars is way more militarily uh, powerful than Star Trek, but if they can beam onto that Star Destroyer, they can win that engagement. You, you see where I'm going with this? But they'll never use it again, at least not that I'm aware of. And I, um, I do like the fact that they send this single probe. It's like, why would they send such a dinky little ship? It's interesting because I have a note here, and I'll let you decide. So they managed to take out the probe, uh, more or less accidentally. Do you think that was luck, bad writing, or good writing? Now, I ask this because most people looking at this say, oh, yeah, whatever. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and spoil this ahead of time because that's how these work. Uh, that probe was deliberately sent to pull in Voyager to the inevitable trap that the sphere would be so they could get Seven back. All of this time and effort has been spent to reclaim Seven without just going over and, and taking Voyager. Um, I will admit, you know, the, the nitpicky thing, that's stupid because they could just have sent five cubes and held Voyager in place and battered its shields down, beamed Seven off, and then left. Or assimilated Voyager. Uh, whatever. <laughs> I'm just going to ignore that. Again, there's a lot of nitpicks with the, with this episode. Um, but so the whole point of this, you know, the probe and then the sphere was all there to, to get Seven back to the Collective. Okay, I'm with that. But I mentioned the luck thing. Because the luck thing is really important. It is, in fact, I think, the primary theme of this episode. It is, we know, we do know that it was staged, that the probe, you know, it, was, it wasn't actually supposed to go boom like the way it did. Um, but with the Hansons, well, it, it might have been staged with the Hansons as well. That's, we're not actually sure about that. But the point is, in both cases, both crews, the crew of the, the Hanson ship, I don't remember if they were name it, and the crew of the Voyager said, well, we got lucky. So let's push it. Getting lucky, pushing it, and becoming overconfident, becoming arrogant as a result, is the primary theme of this episode. It's showcased everywhere, and it, it runs through every single aspect of it. The Borg Queen does that, Janeway herself does that, the Hansons did that, Seven did that at least at one point in time, arguably at two points in time, um, when she was on the Borg uh, Unimatrix console, or complex, excuse me. And so... That, uh, I like the fact that this ties into that and is a brilliant form of foreshadowing that you probably wouldn't even see coming unless you've already seen the episode. Um, 
I also, one of the things I like about this episode, and by the way, I keep referring it to an episode because I think of two-parters like this as an episode, forgive me. Uh, one of the things I like about this episode is it shows the Borg really well, actually. Despite the nitpicks, despite the continuity gaffes, despite not adhering to its own rules, it shows that the Borg's strength is not the fact that one of their ships is whacked out invincible. I like that. It's one of the things I liked about uh, First Contact as well, actually, that the battle had been waging against this one cube with dozens and dozens of brilliant, powerful, newly designed anti-Borg Federation ships had actually managed to, to damage the cube because the battle had been dragging on so long that they just they, they no longer had the energy reserves to keep adapting constantly to a constant barrage of energy. They're not invincible. They're not Superman walking through it. The main powers of the Borg, other than their assimilation, of course, has always been their adaptability and the fact that they're the frickin' Borg. In other words, you take that cube down and there are literally thousands others waiting. Uh, like I said, they could have just sent a bunch of cubes and got void or whatever, whatever. Um, I like that this shows that, though. In many cases, we see the Borg losing... But we also see it from the Borg's perspective. And we see just how little those losses mean to the Borg. It's like the equivalent of a tsunami that's coming at you. And you manage to rush up and, and, and like scoop out. I know this is a weird analogy. You manage to scoop out several bucketfuls of the tsunami before it hits the town. So yay! Those, and you did. You got rid of those bucketfuls. Those little chunks of water will not hit the town. The rest of the tsunami will. Because that's what the Borg are. They are not a ship. They are not a drone. They are the collective. And this episode shows that really well. I'll mention a specific instance later on. Um, so I got to say one thing. I want to smack the crap out of the Hanson family. The, the, the parents, I should clarify. Because I can't think of uh, any justification at all, ever, for taking their young daughter along with them on a dangerous expedition out past basically known territory in a, in a case where they knew they were, quoting the mother here, burning their bridges so they didn't really have a home to go, to go back to, crossing into the neutral zone, forbidding uh, calls to come back, and if they actually found what they were looking for, they had no idea how hostile they would be. And they brought their daughter along. I think, uh, I, I'm trying to think, uh, I think it's the doctor later on who says it best. I Forgive me, I don't even remember how he says it, but basically he says, you know, for all their brilliance, most people shouldn't, shouldn't bring along their three or five-year-old daughter or however old she was along to something like this. That is insanity. That is absolutely insanity. Now, I know it had to happen for Seven to exist, but oh my God, really? Really? Why would you do that? Like I said, I just want to smack the crap out of them. I, I'm, I'm done. There are ways to explain it. There are ways to explain it. But in my opinion, there are no ways to excuse it. And if you're asking why, all I have to do is point to Seven herself, who was raised by the Borg thanks to her parents' flagrant stupidity. Moving on. So, uh... That luck theme comes up again here as the Hansons actually find the cube and the cube scans them and says... You are totally irrelevant. Not enough people, not enough technology. Nope. And they just leave. So they got lucky. They decide to push it. They follow the cube. They actually get sucked into a transwarp conduit and get sucked over to the Delta Quadrant as a result of this. 
Uh, by the way, I know that at that point, they were basically probably of the mindset of, well, we're stranded, so we might as well. But what was their long-term plan? <laughs> like, what, what were they going to do at that point? I, I'm sorry, this is one nitpick I'm going to bring up. They actually bring up that they're having a fuel shortage issue, and that makes sense. This is like 20 years ago, so uh, this is uh, before TNG started, for example. So they're not quite at the same uh, level of, of refinement and still needing resources and blah, 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 blah. Um, so what were they going to do for supplies and resources and dilithium? And in fact, they actually bring up in the thing, we are low on dilithium, we're screwed. Then they encounter the cube. Then they're in the delta quadrant. And then they keep operating for several more, uh, well, I forget the exact time, but a long time, months, if not years. Where did the fuel problem go? Anyways. So I just want to have a quick note here. Cliff Bull directed the first part of this, and he does a great job. He's done some really good stuff with Star Trek in the past across uh, DS9, TNG, and Voyager. And there's a great scene where Annika Hansen, you know, they, they, count, they encounter the Borg cube, and it's there, and, like, the, the, the framing of it is very specific. And so then Seven gets onto the bridge and looks, and the framing is, like, almost identical, and then they see the Borg sphere there. Very nice touch, a very nice way to showcase... Uh, how, how terrible the situation is. Um, I do also want to mention something. One of the things that I feel that I, I have to actually defend this episode of, even though the episode itself isn't doesn't want my help on this, is the fact that they didn't know how bad the Borg were. Now, I mention that because I constantly blast the Hansons for their stupidity. But most of that has to do with Annika being along for the ride. And I mean that sincerely. They didn't really know. Now, they knew what they were doing was dangerous because this is an alien race they know very little about. That is always dangerous. Imagine if they'd been doing this with Romulans. Imagine if they'd been doing this with Cardassians. Imagine if they'd been doing this with Breen. There are plenty of races out there that if they were some unknown thing and some people tried to find them and got caught, it would be a bad thing. There are also races where it would be a fine thing and some races where it would be a neutral thing. The Borg are probably as bad as bad gets, but they didn't know that, and so I'd feel the need to defend that. The whole point of this is they didn't know who or what the Borg were. They had no understanding of just how Borg they were, of how much of a threat these things posed to them personally and to everything else in every other way, shape, and form. So, yeah. Um... On the one, okay, so the biodampener thing. I like the biodampener thing for three reasons, or for, for, a few, for a few reasons, and I dislike it as well. On the one hand, the idea that you can put something on you that makes you acclimate to the, uh, the environment of the cube so the, the, the drones don't notice you is a little silly. Uh, it's, it's the idea of the drones not using their eyes thing, right? Or maybe they just don't care about you. I'm not sure. But... What I do like about it is two things. Number one, it is very clearly limited. It has to be specifically adhered to your physiology. You are the only person who can wear that biodampener, and it will only work for you under certain circumstances for a certain period of time, and it's very easy to disrupt. So it's a very limited power. And I like it when uh, fiction in general, science, fa fantasy, doesn't matter, uh, will give the heroes access to something which you know it gives them an edge, 
but is limited in its application. So it's not just a I win button. It's a I have to use this carefully button. Um, so I like it for that reason. Uh, I also like the fact that it's invalidated by the end of the episode because the Borg already have assimilated that knowledge. But I want to talk a little bit more about that later. So we're just going to save that for then. So second page now. Second page. Um, one of the things I like about the dialogue in this episode, again, very smart dialogue, uh, is, I, I know Joe Minoski didn't really do the dialogue, it was actually Brandon Braga, but I know Minoski worked on this episode as well. Um, it's interesting that Janeway, when she's talking to Seven and they're discussing the, the upcoming mission, Janeway simultaneously approaches her as a friend who is concerned about her friend who is obviously having stress issues, and as a captain who is trying to succeed at a very dangerous and difficult mission. I like the fact that both are approached basically equally, because they should be. She, as captain, is concerned about this mission succeeding. The consequences of failure here are colossal and permanent. If they screw up, it's over for the whole crew, just like that. And they will have a fate worse than death, unless they decide to, you know, shoot, shoot torpedo the, the warp core, basically. However, she is also still concerned about Seven because Janeway actually cares about Seven and Seven cares about her and the two of them have that rapport and so Janeway's like, look, you're, you're, judge, you're blah, blah, blah for the mission and I'm sorry I did this and blah, blah, blah. She just keeps, she like literally, if you pay attention to her dialogue, she goes back and forth between the perspectives of friend, captain, friend, captain. It's really nicely done. I do find it a little odd that Seven goes out of her way not to explain to Janeway why she needs to be on the mission, what's been happening to her, the queen talking to her. I find that odd, but I, and I have a note here, but I'm actually not going to read it because after some thought, I think that the point, that the reason why it was done was because Seven believed that if she admitted to Janeway and the rest of the crew, the queen's been talking to me, things would get screwed up. Either they wouldn't trust her or they'd take this as a warning and try to you know, save her and get, end up getting screwed up in the process or do the mission without her and end up getting assimilated, blah, 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 blah. So I feel like the reason she went on is because Seven believed, for whatever reason, that the only actual way to ensure that the, the crew was fine, her crew was fine, was to go ahead and accept being taken back by the Queen accept the deal that the queen offers so that her crew can go and be free. Questionable, but in her defense, Seven was under a very severe amount of stress, having to be very closely exposed to the Borg, which still terrifies the crap out of her, and the memories of when she was a child, which still terrifies the crap out of her, especially knowing how that ended. So I think that's justifiable. I will say this, one of the things that was deliberately done in this episode by Braga specifically was he wanted the audience to question if Seven was always a mole. Now, a mole that was turned. It's pretty clear by the events of this episode that Seven is loyal to the Voyager crew. But the question that's supposed to be put there, that, that was never followed up on, unfortunately, was did the Queen actually send Seven to them, let them take Seven so she could be this, well, mole, or... Did it, or or is that just a lie? Now I know that sounds weird, but if you pay attention to what the Queen says, she lies a lot in this episode. I'll talk more about that later. Um, but yeah, both both are actually entirely feasible, and it's it's probably meant to be up to you to decide. Uh, I'll go ahead and spoil something for you. It's never brought up again. <sighs> um, 
I do think it's interesting that they keep calling this a heist. They even specifically refer to this as uh, the Fort Knox situation. Uh, small continuity gaffe that I just have to point out because it's amusing to me. They mentioned that the Ferengi 10 years ago tried to go ahead and break into Fort Knox and failed. I find that funny because that was before the last outpost in TNG, also known as the first formal contact with the Ferengi. Just pointing it out. I'm I'm actually only really pointing it out because I want to get across the idea of just how many continuity gaffes there are in this episode. And not all of them are from the rest of Star Trek, too. Like the fuel thing. That problem just went away because the plot no longer required it. That's the, Like I said, there are a lot of holes in this episode. Uh, and I will bring that up one more time after this. Um, so... I have a note here. This is more to myself, but I'm going to read it to you, too. They used this the, the probe to get their interest, and then they used the sphere as bait to get seven. Now, I've already discussed why that's stupid tactics. However, it is a sign of a new direction for the Borg, something that they started doing in Scorpion, a rare and alien concept for the Borg, a concept called strategy. The Borg have never needed strategy up until Scorpion, ever. They walk up, and they win. Or they walk up, lose, 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 and then win. Again, the tsunami analogy I gave earlier. Eventually, that tsunami's going to hit. They've never needed strategy before. But after Scorpion, after 8472, the Undyne, or Undine if you prefer, they finally said, okay, we're going to start using strategy. This, I feel, is the biggest reason for the new queen. This, the previous queen was the, we are the tsunami. This queen is one who is willing to work with individuals, who lies, as I brought up earlier. And that's an alien concept, too, by the way. This is actually the first time, uh, I think, ever. I'd have to reanalyze uh, the, the dialogue in First Contact. But ignoring the possibility of First Contact, this is the first time the Borg ever lie. That they ever manipulate, that they ever deceive, and that they ever actually lay a trap for someone. This is such a new thing for the Borg. And again, why I firmly believe this is a new queen. The idea being the previous queen wasn't working. Because that's how I view the Borg. The collective decides the queen. There's, uh, I talked about this in my first contact rumination. There's kind of a give and take between the queen and the collective. There is the collective. And then there's the queen. They are connected, but at the same time separate. The queen has her own individual wills, her own individual desires, her own mentality and mindset and whatnot. And it, uh, for all intents and purposes, has an individual personality. However... She has to always be a slave, for lack of a better term. Uh, she's always chained to the will of the collective. So she can only pursue what she cares about as long as it also benefits the collective. Again, as I discussed in First Contact. So this new queen, the, so the previous queen basically removed from queenhood, deactivated, just like any other malfunctioning drone would be deactivated. And a new queen was selected to, de to determine the new direction of the collective because the collective believed they needed a new direction. And if I'm being bold, I agree. This is fascinating, too, because if you think about this, this is the logical way out of the Borg dilemma as a writer. I've mentioned many, many times the dilemma the Borg present as a writer. You have introduced a race so powerful, so far-reaching, that actually wiping them out would basically require Q snapping his fingers. It's almost impossible to eradicate the Borg. So how do you remove them as a threat long-term? You remove them as a threat long-term. Don't exterminate them. 
imagine a Borg in which we have the unity situation. Remember, all those former drones wanted to be part of the collective again. They wanted that. They sought out for that. I felt one of the best parts of Unity was how horrifying it was seeing these people slowly turn into the cacophony of the Borg Collective as they were healing Chakotay. And in that moment, you could see the beginning of the Borg. I've, I've often postulated that's how the Borg began. A bunch of people wanted to be a collective. And once they were, and how much better things were for them and how much happier they were, they made the mistake of assuming other people would want the same thing they did. And they started expanding forcefully. As data put, they conquered. What I mean by all this, though, is have the Borg adapt. We are already seeing it in this episode. A new, again, things that have been alien to the Borg up until this point, they are now considering as a possibility. Have a gradual shift. Don't, don't, don't pull the garbage with... Uh, in the flesh or whatever that episode is with 8472. I hate that crap. It's just, here's 8472. They, they were the Daleks and now we're friends with them. Don't do that. Have a shift. Gradual. Inch by inch. Have the Borg adapt and adapt and adapt until the most alien possible concepts enter the Borg's mind. The concept of diplomacy. The concept of interaction without conquest. The concept of not everyone wants to be part of the collective. The concept of walking up a board cube showing up over a planet and asking for volunteers, explaining what it is that they're going to do and offering you this collective. That's how I would get rid of the Borg threat. I've been sitting on that for a while now because I've been asked that question many times. Um, and I feel like this episode really was like the first step towards that and then they'll never do that again, but whatever. Oh, anyways, um, words. Um, so, I, I um, speaking of the Queen, I think, uh, so one of the things in this episode that they never say outright, and I think this is deliberate, is why the Queen gives so much interest, so much time, so much effort spent on Seven. Why is Seven so special? Why does she matter? I don't mean that to be derogatory, but why does she matter to the Queen? What possible purpose does she have? Now, the stated reason is you have such unique experiences in helping us conquer Earth. We can't go militarily, so we have to go some other way. I hate to point this out again, but even in Voyager, we've seen the Borg send ships, fleets of cubes after enemies. They could do that. They could say, okay, you 15 cubes, go. And there goes the Federation. I'm sorry, but we barely repulsed one cube twice. Also, there's a Dominion War going on, so the Borg showing up at this point would probably just, just be cleaning up, like, yep, yeah, assimilate, assimilate, assimilate. So the idea of military conquest is not being out of, out of hand is ridiculous. Unless, and again, they're thinking in new directions. This, uh, the concept they mentioned, the, uh, the uh, assimilating the very land thing is actually really really interesting to me because uh it's 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 really horrifying and kind of a logical extension of assimilation in fact we actually see this in star trek online a game i highly recommend by the way uh where we see borged planets and of course since star trek online occurs like 30 years after this they've perfected the process quite a bit they don't it doesn't take you know generations as as seven postulates for it to happen no it happens in a couple of hours it's kind of terrifying, honestly. Um, but I like that that seed was planted here. But no, 
Why seven? All her stated reasons about going after seven just don't make sense to me. And at first, when I first saw this, I thought it was just bad writing. It's the, it's the you are special without reason concept. But no, I actually don't think that anymore, especially having read a lot of Brennan Braga's interviews and, and, and having uh, analyzed a lot of his other works now, too. I know the man gets crapped on a lot, but he does have a few patterns. And one of those patterns is the idea of someone wanting someone, something and never actually saying why. I think the queen wanted a locutus. Now, I say that with the pause. I imagine about half my audience right now is going, well, duh, I figured that out years ago. Why are you so stupid, Arsh? But seriously, I think the queen wanted another locutus. I think that she wanted another counterpart, another equal, as was stated in First Contact. Someone who could be there to... Uh, counterbalance the queen, help counterbalance the collective, help to keep the Borg adapting and moving forward towards perfection. A new idea, basically. This is even shown better later on. Um, forgive me for skipping ahead in my notes here. Uh, where is it? Where is it? Um, it's, it's actually quite a bit further on. Just a second. Uh, here we go. So, uh, later on, Seven uh, is, is, has helped a ship escape. I'll talk about that more later. Um, and what Seven says, the argument she gives for sparing the people on that ship is very Borg. It's four people and a broken ship. They're literally not worth the energy to assimilate or destroy. The Queen says, no, we must destroy them so, because otherwise no one will be able to... This way, they will, they will not be able to continue to resist us. And then Seven pleads with her not to, and the Queen lets them go. I've heard people discuss that scene for years. I'm not kidding. That scene has always been such a thing, because they never, in the episode, outright state why that happened. This is my reason why. Because Seven gave a different idea to the Queens and the Collectives. Let them go. Spare them. I think that's what the Queen wanted. Again, the Locutus idea. Someone else who would have an individual free will who can engender, by their very existence, creativity and adaption. If I can be so bold, it's one of the reasons I like streaming. I mean, I, I love doing these rumination things, too, for you guys. And I love reading your guys' comments. You, you guys have, have engendered a lot of creativity and thought in me. But when I'm streaming and I'm talking about an idea in a lore run, for example, I get just immediate feedback from my viewers. And sometimes you agree with me, and sometimes you don't. And a lot of times, you guys will say something that'll spark a thought in me. Or I'll say something that'll spark a thought in you. And from that, that uh, social interaction, new thoughts will arise, new ideas will arise, ideas will change. I've actually changed my mind on several things because of what you guys say during my streams and during my ruminations. And so, and I've gone back sometimes and say, well, I, I know I said that in a previous video, but I don't think that anymore because dot, dot, dot. I think that's what the Queen wanted out of Seven. I think that was the whole purpose, why Seven was so important, because she was someone who was, admittedly, uniquely suited to that exact task. Now, I do like, going on with the episode a bit, um, I do like the, that, uh, 
where is it? Just reading through my notes here, catching back up. I have such terrible handwriting. Uh, I do like how Janeway puts together two and two with seven. I like that a lot, actually. Um, I really like the fact that rather than, oh, she's betrayed us, or oh, you know, that just hanging over the episode and basically making false drama, Janeway looks at the situation, sees it, sees what was happening seven, and says, she was being threatened. And she's right. Jane, seven was basically being threatened. Come back to us, or we take Voyager. And so Seven willingly gave herself up. I like that a lot. Not only does it inform Janeway's character as not being an idiot, not only does it inform uh, Seven's character as showing how much she has grown to care about a crew that at first she was completely alien and ostracized in, and, and it shows that, that you know Tom's interactions with her and Tuvok's interactions with her and Janeway's interactions with her have actually started reaching her, but it is no artificial drama. It's good writing as opposed to bad. Very, very nice. Um, I also like the fact that the crew is totally on board with this. We've lost one of our own, and we're going to go get her back, even though that means going into the ball of the Borg. I also find it interesting that Tom and Tuvok and the Doctor are the people... Oh, the Doctor. I forgot to mention him earlier. Are the, are the people who go on that shuttle, along with Janeway, to go after her. Now, you might think, well, that's just logically. You need your best pilot, you need someone who can adapt and, and be good under pressure, and you need the Doctor for I have no idea why. And Janeway's there because she's pretending to be Kirk. And the more you think about that, that just kind of falls apart. No, there's another reason. Those are the people most connected to Seven, the people most willing to endure literally worse than death to get her back. Tuvok and his rapport with her, Tom, who's always been reaching out to her, Janeway, who treated her like her daughter, and the Doctor, who, let's be honest with ourselves, is very close to her and, and has that similarly alien perspective that outsider perspective like she does, and the natural camaraderie that engenders. Now, the Queen does a lot of interesting things. I really wish I could go point by point down it. One of my favorites is she basically says, we are on a ship, and we're being attacked by these aliens, and they're going to destroy the ship. How do you propose we deal with this, Seven? And she says it so calmly, because of course she does. The queen won't die if her body dies. I know later on in the episode they contradict that. I know. It, nitpick, etc. Flaws, continuity, moving on. The queen won't die if her body dies. She'll, she'll, a new model will be uploaded. Bam. There you go. I don't mean new model. A new, a new body. Okay. Collective won't give a damn if the ship dies. So the only one who actually cares if that ship is destroyed is the one unique individual on it. Seven. So what are you going to do, Seven? So Seven is basically blackmailed into assimilating these people. And then the Queen's like, you will help assimilate them. And she pauses for a moment and she says, no. No, that's pushing you too hard. Go help repair our shields, please. Um, and I like that, too. And more fuel to the fire of, of the Queen-Seven situation because distance helps. I've talked about this before, so we'll cover it again in very, very brief. If you have to stab a person in the chest to kill them, that's horrible. For both of you, obviously. But even for you, even for you doing the stabbing, being forced to do that is a terrible gut-wrenching thing you may never get over. Being forced to shoot someone, pretty bad. Being forced to hit a button on a ship, well, that's getting a little more tolerable because you're not seeing the people you're doing it. Giving an order to someone who's pushing a button, who's firing the guns. You see what I mean? The more distance you have, the easier it feels, the easier it seems for the individual to do it. 
because you are less you are less attached to the actual specific moment of the life or lives being ended. So the queen deliberately gives seven distance, gives her that moment to pause. I love the following scene after that. Seven gets injured, and a couple of Borgs stomp up. This is brilliantly directed. It's directed exactly how a dozen other scenes have been shown with the Borg before. The drone comes up to the fallen Federation member and picks them up and brings the thing and then heals her. Brilliantly done. Other than that last step, it's exactly like the Borg have always assaulted Federation officers. And we saw this in First Contact a lot. It's shot almost exactly like a scene in First Contact. And then the, the nodules go in. But instead he heals her and then lets her go. And Seven resists, too, as she's being picked up. And then he heals her and then she there's just this look of horror and confusion and just lost on her face. And then, she, and then an alien, just after this, an alien tries to run, and without even thinking about it, she grabs him. Doesn't even think, it's just pure reflex. She doesn't even realize she's doing it at first. I'm like, huh? And then a board comes up and assimilates him. I love those scenes. Um, I already mentioned the... Uh, the, the Borg perspective thing and, and why I think the Queen lets the ship go. Uh, and then we have another flashback. I just want to point out how each flashback, again, continues that theme of luck leading to arrogance. And uh, in that, I believe this is actually the final flashback. It really shows just how incredibly arrogant the Hansons have become in a weird way. Even in the midst of dangerous situation, knowing that the Borg have detected them and have determined that they are now a tasty morsel to consume, they still call it just another close call. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mentioned the planetary assimilation thing. Uh, so, the way that the Queen plays Seven continues furthering my theory, uh, and along with my other theory, which I'll talk about in a moment. Um, it's the last thing I'll talk about. She actually deliberately says, we will not turn you into a drone. This is earlier in the episode. And then she flat out threatens Seven with turning her into a drone. And then she reinforces the idea of family. She gives the, her the idea of, we will be willing to defend you, and then she turns around and threatens her. She is actually very manipulative. And again, I kind of wish I'd written down each individual thing the queen does to really go down the list. She really is very, very manipulative and very conniving, very cunning, uh, not cunning, uh, deceptive in how she interacts with Seven. She even, again, lies flat out later. She says, we have a simile, we have detected, you know, the shuttle, one hologram, three, you know, three humanoids, and the ship has been consumed. And she flat out lies, saying they've already captured and assimilated them. And Seven calls her out on it, says, no, I would be able to sense them in the collective if you had. Flat out lies, blatantly. Again, indicative of that new strategy, that new mindset. I like this because, just like with Picard, the important part here for the Borg, for the Queen, is for Seven to choose to be Locutus. Not to be assimilated into it, not to be forced into it, not to be, you know, not to be brute, brooded into it. I think is actually the way to put that. Don't put nodules in and do that. That's not what they want. For her to actually be, for, for Card and for Seven to be what the Queen has wanted, Queens, I should say, have wanted, they need, need 
a situation where that other person has all of their free will and is willingly putting forth all of their individuality and intellect and mind into this new uh, cooperation, you know, the, the bouncing of ideas thing I talked about earlier. Otherwise, it's just not going to work, and the Borg know that. I do think this the Queen got a little bit desperate. I also think the final confrontation was ridiculous. It actually made me groan a couple of times. Uh, it was completely devoid of tension and lasted just a little bit too long. But that last confrontation really shows the reason why, despite the flaws, many, many flaws of this episode, and even the scene, why I love this episode. Now I actually got to go back in my notes a page. A uh, quick note, Magnus, haha, uh, Magnus Hansen, his, her father, actually dies in this episode. I only point that out because the, the series never acknowledges it ever again. Uh, and they deliberately left the fate of her mother uh, in, in the corner. They, they deliberately didn't talk about it uh, because they were thinking about bringing her in the future. As you can see, that never happened. But anyways, so, why? Why do I like this? This is the culmination of Seven's character arc. This is this is where Seven has been going ever since Scorpion. Now, moment of breaking. I acknowledge the fact that the next two seasons of Voyager completely ignore the fact that Seven's character arc finished here. And they should have started a new character arc. And they didn't, and they're dumb, okay? Let's just acknowledge that. But in my opinion, Seven's character arc, starting from Scorpion and ending here at Dark Frontier, has been a cohesive arc. I've talked about it many, many times. In this episode, we really get to hammer in the fact that Seven is not human and not Borg. She is Spock. No, I don't mean literally. Spock's character arc was the same damn thing. He was not human. He was not Vulcan. He was Spock. And that is what this episode is all about for Seven. Her truly, utterly coming to grips with the fact that she is herself. In that final confrontation that I mentioned, both, excuse me, both individuals are, t are, are basically saying, come with me, they're wrong, come with me, they're wrong, come with me, they're wrong. Trying to argue with Seven because both Janeway throughout the previous episodes and the Queen in this episode have been looking at Seven and seeing their half of the picture. The queen goes in and tries to make her more cybernetic, improving her, enhancing her, attaching her to the collective, making her more Borg. Whenever Seven was back on the ship, and this was especially true early on, they would try to make her look more human, act more human, engage in more human vices like coffee, etc. Both sides were trying to pull her away from the middle towards their side because that's the side they cared about. And again, that final confrontation shows it perfectly. But Seven is not human, and Seven is not Borg. She is Seven. I love that. And it's also interesting, because there is... On, on the side of individuality, you have all of the weakness of being an individual. We've seen this before. People will hate you and fear you, look down at you. People will still, even in this episode, Tom Paris, a gentleman who is actually quite understanding and, and, and tolerant and has been helping, reaching out to Seven more than once, does that social faux pas of talking about how he was doing all those mindless drones a favor. A reminder of the fact that she will still be ostracized even as she is accepted because of that difference. And on the collective side, well, you lose all of those comforts of social interaction and friendship and things that you enjoy. But on the flip side, 
All those drones are there for you. All of the, the might of the collective is there for you. They do care about you, and they demonstrate it. Just like those drones did when they picked her up and healed her. These drones will fling away their lives for you if they need to. Because they don't matter as much as you do. There is a positive and a negative to both sides. And I personally feel that, if not for the efforts of Tom, the Doctor, Tuvok, and Janeway, Seven might have opted to stay with the Collective. But she has grown to actually care about the Voyager crew. And so in the end, Seven decides to go with the Voyager crew. Not because Janeway orders her. Which I, I love that, by the way. Janeway's like, I order you! That's such a stupid line. But, um... But she decides to go with Janeway, not because of orders, not because she's human, but because that's where the people she cares about are, and that's where she wants to be. And I also like how the Queen, now having given up all pretense of anything, just goes after her full tilt. Um, and then we have a ridiculous action sequence, and the end. I like this episode. It's a really, really good episode. And again, Seven has basically terminated her character arc. Her first, I should say, character arc as of this one. Again, this was such the big. I, I hate to talk about this again because this was such a beginning of so greatness. This was the beginning of the new Borg that was actually supposed to be continued in Unimatrix Zero. I'll talk about it when we get there. And this is supposed to be the beginning of the new character arc for Seven. Now, there is a secondary arc for Seven that will actually be dovetailed in the very beginning of Season 6. We'll talk about that when we get there. But really, Seven really should have started a new character arc here. However, basically every episode from now on is going to be Seven Learns a Lesson About Humanity, the end. And they kind of just kept reusing her and kept reusing her because they didn't have any ideas what to do with her, and she was the most popular character on the show. Dark Frontier could have been the way of the warrior for Voyager. It could have rejuvenated the show and helped them go into a brand new, exciting, innovative new direction. I've often argued that while Deep Space Nine was a pretty good show up until Way of the Warrior, Way of the Warrior is when they said, no, we mean this. And they, they actually sat down and said, no, we're going to actually make this work. And they struck off and did something amazing and new and innovative and really shook up the status quo. Dark Frontier should have done that for Voyager. <sighs> Oh, well, like I said, it's Voyager in a microcosm. Hope you've enjoyed me ranting for however long it's been. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and edit this together and then toss it up pretty much as soon as I'm done. So I will see you guys next week.